for the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shack. It also means we have to summon the imagination to think about what life is going to be in an era not defined by cheap and easily accessible fossil fuels. Now, that era is coming to a close. It's going to be over at some point. And the question is, does it end in kind of an ugly way that exacerbates the worst of human weakness? Or do we try to plan in a a rational and compassionate way to think about the, the kind of people we want to be, or perhaps more accurately, the kind of people we claim to be? I'm excited to welcome back Robert Jensen. He is a professor in the School of Journalism at the University of Texas. He was on this program a couple of years ago. He talked about his books, Arguing for Our Lives, A User's Guide to Constructive Dialogue, and We Are All Apocalyptic Now on the Responsibilities of Teaching, Preaching, Reporting, Writing, and Speaking Out. His latest book is Plain Radical, Living, Loving, and Learning to Leave the Planet Gracefully. This is a book about a friend of yours, Jim Copland. Uh, Now, the book's not a biography. Uh, You call it a polemical memoir. What is that? Well, it's uh, I can't write without being polemical. That is, I'm always trying to make an argument for a certain way of seeing politics, economics and our relationship to the world. Uh, But it is in the form of a memoir because Jim Copland was a person so central to me forming the ideas I articulate in that book. Now, nobody's heard of Jim Copland unless you knew him personally. He was a teacher and an activist and an organizer and uh, a superb gardener, among other things. Uh, He had a huge influence on people he was close to, but he didn't write or speak widely. So he's not known outside of those circles. But his influence was sort of foundational. I, in a lot of ways, the person I am is pretty much a direct result of my inter, uh, interaction with and friendship and deep love with Jim Copland. Uh, the title of your book is Plain Radical. The plain play on words there has to do with North Dakota, I assume, as well as plain spoken, perhaps. Tell me about plain radical and radical politics. Well, the plain part, uh, uh, in some sense, refers both to the way Jim spoke. He was a plain spoken person. He was incredibly bright. He was a research psychologist early in his life. Uh, and he had you know, spent a lot of time in his university career understanding very complex theory and research. But he was always, in a sense, the central Minnesota farm boy that he was born. Uh, and he was very plain spoken. He, he's, he talked in a way that wasn't all dressed up for you know, the academic seminar. He also was a plain person in his in his habits. Uh, he lived very frugally. He was probably the most frugal person I've ever met who still lived in a city. Um, and and he wasn't uh, taken with, you know, cultural fads. Um, and that was one of the ways in which Jim was a real model for me. Uh, so he was very plain spoken in both both those aspects. He was radical in the sense that we mean radical as going to the root to trying to understand the foundations of problems. Um, We deal often with the symptoms of problems, whether it's racism or sexism or whatever. But we know that underneath those problems we're experiencing are systems, white supremacy, patriarchy, for instance. And Jim was a radical in that sense. He was always looking at the systems 
out of which our problems and struggles emerged, recognizing that long-term political change required us to be honest about those systems. And that's rare in contemporary politics, where, in fact, we almost never think about those foundational systems of power, whether it's white supremacy and patriarchy or capitalism or the industrial model uh, of development. All of these things are, are systems we need to rethink and challenge, and in my opinion, um, on all of them, eventually transcend if there's going to be a human future. This radical politics, this radical way of thinking is a way, as you, as you mentioned earlier, of really getting to the truth of the matter, as painful as it might be. Yeah, and, and that was another thing that Jim helped me understand, is that if you take any of this seriously, it's not easy. So for instance, I'm white, I'm male, uh, you know, I'm now educated and comfortably in the middle class, and those also describe Jim. And if you take seriously a critique of white supremacy and you're white and you grew up in the United States, it's inevitable that you're going to have to confront some pretty ugly stuff about yourself. And that certainly has been my experience. The same can be said about being male and trying to really understand the nature of institutionalized male dominance, what we call patriarchy. Uh, and so none of this is easy for anybody on either side of the fence. But Jim really did model a kind of courage, you know, not the courage of picking up a gun and, and running to the barricades necessarily, but that courage that comes when you're honest about, especially about your own unearned, unearned privilege and power. Uh, and that was a, a big part of what I learned from Jim. Uh, cultivating that ability to be critically self-reflective uh, was really, really important to the way I developed, again, both intellectually and politically. You know, I picked up on the word courage, and I have a quote from, actually, it's near the end of your book, but it also speaks about courage that Jim had. He understood that continuing to struggle for justice and sustainability when there was no evidence of support or hope was the mark of real courage and character. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Well, Jim certainly had that kind of courage. So, you know, take these, what, what I often refer to as these problems within the human family, racism, sexism, uh, wealth inequality, uh, war and peace. All of these are problems we humans create for ourselves. And that's what Jim meant, that, you know, these are not systems of power and oppression that are going to magically be transcended overnight. And you kind of have to be in it for the long haul. You, you, it's not that you don't have hope that there will be improvement, but you recognize the, the nature of the struggle. But the, the problems on which Jim really wrestled, I think, most honestly, were problems not within the human family, but the problems that the human family, that is we homo sapiens, cause uh, in, at the planetary level, the, the, what Jim always called the multiple cascading ecological crises. Crises, plural, many of them, not just global warming, but a whole raft of, of ecological crises that really do threaten the ability of human beings to maintain large-scale societies. Um, now, on that front, Jim would have said that not only uh, is it a long struggle, but it may be a struggle we've already lost. Now, by that, I don't mean you know the world's going to end tomorrow in some you know fiery rapture. I, I don't want to get apocalyptic in that sense, but uh, 
it is, I think, important to, to look at the data that comes out of the sciences that tells us about the health of the ecosystems on which our own lives are based. It's good to take stock of our own experience as we watch these changes and deal with the question of where are we heading? Uh, you know, Jim, as I said, was a farm boy and he was in a way as intimately connected to the the earth as anybody I know personally. And and that was a source of real grief for him because the, the larger living world uh, of which we are a part, which he had a very sensual relationship with growing up in, in a rural area, uh, we're, we're losing that. And, and that was and that is still not an easy thing to face. But Jim faced it as courageously as anyone I know. If you're just joining us, my guest is Robert Jensen. He's the professor uh, in the School of Journalism at the University of Texas and the author of Plain Radical, Living, Loving, and Learning to Leave the Planet Gracefully. Well, let's uh, let's talk uh, plainly in this sense. I mean, uh, we are in the midst of industrial collapse. Uh, Jim said that, and, and you would agree, too, wouldn't you, that uh, the systems are really failing and the idea of that we can kind of fix it either technologically or, well, or superstitiously, um, we need to face reality and, and nobody's facing reality. I mean, uh, we had this presidential election and the general election, uh, not one reporter, journalist asked uh, either candidate about a question about climate change. Yeah, well, let's talk about climate change, which is, of course, the the dominant question. Um, there are in the United States today two major kinds of climate change denial. That is a denial uh, of the severity of the crisis. One, of course, comes mainly out of the Republican Party and it's a denial of the science. It's a contention somehow that human beings are not driving the global warming process. Uh, that's deep denial. But in a way, the, the Democratic Party and, and the political forces they represent are in a kind of denial as well, because I think those politicians are not taking seriously the implications of climate change. You know, talking about increasing solar and wind power is all well and good. But if we're serious about climate change, we have to think about a different way of life. That means that the fossil-fueled industrial development to which many of us have become accustomed, it's, after all, the world I was born into, it defines modern life, uh, it's simply no longer viable over the long term, increasingly not even viable over the short term. That means we have to think about what we mean when we seek to live a good life. A good life can no longer mean the kind of energy consumption that we are used to. Now, again, I said I'm all for, you know, advancing wind and solar power, investing in technology. But the reality is no combination of renewable fuel sources is going to match the dense energy that we've been extracting from coal, oil and natural gas. It's not just about technological fixes. It's about a change in the way we live. And that's really not on the table, not only for mainstream politicians, but for much of anybody. Uh, you know, just think about this conversation we're having about the middle class, how we have to restore the middle class in America. Well, you know, I hate to be a downer, but the middle class is the problem. That is the kind of consumption that's become normal for middle class people. And I'm one of them, so I'm not speaking from on high here. That level of consumption is simply no longer viable. So we have to rethink what we mean by some of these slogans like, you know, restore the middle class or uh, energy independence or other things that really don't make any sense in the world that we live in. 
Uh, now, the good news is that means that the kind of emptiness of modern life in a consumer capitalist consumer society uh, has to be rethought. And a lot of us have been hoping to rethink that anyway. So, you know, there there are some ecological imperatives, but there's also underneath those imperatives an invitation to, in a sense, reimagine what it means to be human. And especially at the end of Jim's life, he and I talked a lot about the importance of new stories about what it means to be human. Um, how are we going to imagine what it means to live a good life? Well, it's going to have to be a dramatically different story than the one that I was handed when I was you know, graduating from high school or graduating from college. Uh, and the book is very much an attempt to convey that, to put that question on the table for people, the way Jim put it on the table for me, you know, more than a quarter century ago now. You wrote in the book, the only solution to global climate destabilization is for companies to relinquish the right to control the fossil energy reserves, and that amounts to $20 trillion. I mean, that's that's the stuff that's in there. We actually burn that stuff, as, as McKibben and others have pointed out. Uh, we're, we're five times past the level. I mean, our whole system is set up basically to implode. Right. Now, and, you know, your, your reference to Bill McKibben in that uh, article he wrote a few years ago about the, the terrifying new math of climate change, pointing out that if we are to recover all of the, the fossil fuels that are in the ground and that are on the balance sheets of the energy companies, you know, it's game over immediately. Uh, we also recognize that even if we simply continue on this trajectory and we're to leave all of that fossil fuel in the ground, we're still in big trouble. That means that we have to summon the political will to challenge those energy companies, but it also means we have to summon the imagination to think about what life is going to be in an era not defined by cheap and easily accessible fossil fuels. Now, that era is coming to a close. It's going to be over at some point. And the question is, does it end in a kind of an ugly way that exacerbates the worst of human weakness? Or do we try to plan in a, a rational and compassionate way to think about the the kind of people we want to be, or perhaps more accurately, the kind of people we claim to be. Because after all, we claim to be moral agents. We claim to base our society on compassion and dignity and solidarity and equality. Well, that's going to be hard to achieve in a mad scramble for resources in a, a world defined uh, you know, by the end of fossil fuels. So this planning process is both technical in the sense we have to think about where is our energy going to come from and how much of it are we going to have available. But it's also, as, as we've been sort of saying, very much a philosophical, perhaps a theological, uh, a, a, a question of stories of how do we understand ourselves? How do we talk about being human? Uh, now, that conversation is going on. It's going on all over the place in, in very, I think, small private spaces. Um, it's clearly going on, for instance, in the community garden movement uh, all over the country. People are reconnecting through community gardening uh, and, and similar kinds of enterprises. It's a conversation certainly going on in the cooperative movement that I've been part of, worker cooperatives, which come together within a capitalist economy based on different values and try to think about our economic activity in a different way. So 
you know, there these conversations are happening everywhere. They're just at this point not part of the mainstream political discourse. And if they don't become part of that discourse pretty soon, uh, Jim would have argued, and I would agree, that there's not a lot of hope. And so, you know, that's the challenge we face. And a lot of people, when I talk about this, feel overwhelmed, and I understand that. But reality is often overwhelming. I, I just think of my own life. I get overwhelmed by reality in lots of different ways on a regular basis, but that's the challenge we face. Robert Jensen is a professor at the School of Journalism at the University of Texas and the author of Plain Radical, Living, Loving, and Learning to Leave the Planet Gracefully. Well, yeah, and I think that's uh, important to be to be honest about it, and that's what the beauty of your book is and your conversation with Jim, that over the years, and, and you yourself, I think you wrote in there one time, and now I'm paraphrasing, that for the first 20 years of your relationship with him, uh, you felt that political activism might turn us around, and then the last four years, um, you said you didn't think that was going to yeah. happen. Yeah, it's this is actually, I, I can feel... The, the emotion rising in me, partly because we're talking about the end of Jim's life. As I said, he died mm. about four years ago. And it's a loss that still is very, very present in my life. Um, and so there's a certain sadness that comes from talking about Jim. But, you know, as you point out in the book, I, I mentioned that in the last years that I spent talking to Jim, we did come back to this uh, often, uh, not because you know, we wanted to be depressive all the time, uh, but because we were trying to sort out what it, you know, what the moral obligations of people might be. And what Jim encouraged me to do, and I, I tried to follow through on, was in the places in which I do speak publicly, uh, whether it's to a community group or a church group or a campus, to not be afraid to discuss these things. Because I, I, I admit that Early on, I, I didn't really want to bring this kind of question up in public. I didn't want to be seen as, you know, the guy who's always a downer. You know, everybody wants right. to be liked. Uh, but but Jim said, push, push yourself. And when I started trying to do that in very small ways at first, uh, I realized that people in the audiences were nodding. In other words, people are thinking about this. They're feeling this. And the problem is so many folks have nowhere to talk about it. I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've discussed these kind of ecological crises in a public talk. And then afterwards, in conversation with people, people say, you know, I've been thinking about this for years. I, it's very much on my mind. But every time I try and bring it up at dinner, you know, people dismiss me or make a joke or, you know, leave the table. Uh, there are a lot of people sorting through this in a kind of isolation. Uh, and so, you know, Part of politics is eventually winning policy debates. It's electing people to office. It's passing legislation. But politics also, you know, is very much about conversation, about creating the space for conversation. So one of the things Jim did was encourage me to not be afraid to talk about this in public. And my experience has been that when I do that, uh, a lot of people open up. Now, I don't want to be you know, naive. We're not talking about the majority of the American public at this point in time, eager to have a conversation about how we have to cut our energy use in half and a corresponding reduction in our material consumption to lead to an entirely different way of life. Okay. <laughs> That's not going to sell, you know, down at the mall perhaps, but there are people eager to have that conversation, people already having that conversation. 
And when we can speak in public about it, I think we push forward this political project of trying to to figure out a new way of living on this planet. And uh, uh, the importance of, of grief over this, I, I uh, was probably about 10 years ago, I uh, I kind of became aware. I saw the film End of Suburbia and then started to research that and realize, uh, you know, I read James Howard Kuntzler and, and uh, John Michael Greer and, and all of these folks. And, and I remember waking up at three in the morning and just, just weeping. Um, I also want to say that's not the end of the story. And the, the end of this era does not necessarily have to mean the end of humanity. That there that's is a, absolutely correct. Yeah. Now, it does mean that there are changes coming and we should not you know, try to obscure the right. point. These changes are not going to be pretty. Um, you know, concentrated wealth and power is going to work to protect that wealth. And, you know, I fear that there are some really difficult times ahead of us all. But that said, your point is well taken. Um, coming to terms with the inevitability of this doesn't mean capitulation and passivity and, you know, uh, inactivity. Right. You know, my friend Jim Coplin was politically active literally till the end of his life. Even when he didn't think that there was a lot of hope, he continued. And his his answer to the question, of, well, why would you do that, was very simple. He, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be a decent person. This is what it means to have a meaningful life. This is what it means to live in community, that you continue to act on our best instincts. And Jim did that his entire life. That said, Jim also felt that grief you're talking about as deeply as anybody I know. Uh, There was a phrase I think I first heard him use probably about 15 years ago. He said, I wake up every morning in a state of profound grief. And by that, he didn't mean he woke up every morning depressed, you know, where he couldn't Mm -hmm. get out of bed. What he meant is that that sense of what has been lost and what is to come was very present for him. And the reason I think it's important to talk about that is because if that grief is not acknowledged, if it's suppressed, it's not going to help us move into the kind of work we need to do. You know, Jim, again, was kind of a role model in that. He he faced all of this honestly and got up every morning to do the work that was important in his life. And that work included maintaining an, you know, an incredible garden which he not only ate out of, but fed lots of other people out of. It meant his volunteer work with a variety of community organizations and political groups. And it also meant nurturing community. Jim was a part of the community where he lived in Minneapolis, but he also was part of this you know, far-flung network of people who knew him and had been influenced by him. And many of those people uh, were still connected today, uh, even though I've never knew these folks until I met them through Jim, there's a kind of sense of our own connection. And those kind of connections, which may not map onto traditional family, uh, are going to be very important when people with similar values find in each other the strength and, and the joy in going on. And that's what Jim's life was about. You know, on the surface, uh, I, I describe Jim as a political organizer, activist, in in community member, but it was in a quiet way that, you know, didn't always involve grabbing a bullhorn and rushing to the front of the demonstration. It's an, it's also a reminder that we all have different roles in forming one of those healthy communities. And some of us are loud and obnoxious like myself. Some of us are quiet and dignified like Jim Copeland. 
but a community, of course, is made up of many different kinds of people, and it's that diversity that creates strong communities. So uh, the one thing Jim Copland would never want is people to read this book and think, oh, everybody has to be like Jim Copland. That would be the last thing he would argue. He's, he would say that people need to find in themselves um, what makes their own life meaningful, connect that up to what other people are doing to make their lives meaningful, and really make a commitment to this project. And people will do that in different ways. Yeah, what I found in, in reading your book, your story as well as Jim's story is validation for what I'm feeling and also an encouragement to be a human being, whatever it takes now, to not give up those values, to, to continue to work. Absolutely. The kind of connections we build with each other today are very much going to influence how this all plays out. And And Jim would say that means not only nurturing and supporting each other, but uh, perhaps a, a greater degree of critical self-reflection. One of the things that worried Jim was that on the left, uh, and I use that term in kind of an expansive sense, uh, we often were not critical enough of each other and of ourselves. And so, you know, sharpening not only um, that sense of solidarity, but recognizing that solidarity also means a kind of almost ruthless honesty with each other is important as well. Uh, we've got hard times coming and there are no easy answers and no simple solutions. Jim was always allergic to doctrinal truths, you know, that, mm. you know, anybody who said, well, here's the way it's all going to work out. Um, and here's what you have to do to make it work out. Jim would be highly skeptical, not because he wasn't willing to commit to political groups or political movements, not because he didn't have his own ideology, but because he recognized the the kind of limited information on which we humans base our conclusions, that the world is a lot more complex than we're able to figure out. And so Jim uh, used to reject what he called the alphabet soup of the left, all these groups typically known by acronyms, many of which told us they had the answer. Um, and Jim would have said, well, uh, at best, we might have answers. And even those answers are pretty tentative because we're always going to be getting new information and learning that we had made mistakes along the way. Robert Jensen has been my guest. Plain radical, living, loving, and learning to leave the planet gracefully. Political and personal and very real. Thanks uh, for being with me today. It's great. Great to talk to you again, John. Thanks. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit, a weekly program at the intersection of spirituality and social justice. It's on several radio stations each week and is distributed through the Pacifica Radio Network. Subscribe to podcasts at progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Be welcome.